0: Now on Documentary on Talk. with the number of women who are childless but not by choice on the increase, producer Hilary Fennell explores what it means to be a woman without children in a child-centred society. This is Childless. I don't talk about this. I don't talk about not having children. I was trying to talk to
1: doctors, therapists, colleagues, friends, anyone I could about my childlessness and nobody would listen. Social infertility, circumstantial infertility, involuntary
2: childlessness, whatever you want to call it, the number of women who are childless, but not by choice, is on the increase. I'm taking you to meet six of these women, seven including myself, at different stages in our stories, and to discover how it is possible to create a life of meaning, being childless, in a child-centred society.
3: My name is Gemma White and I am 37 years old. I live in Bangor now, I come from Belfast. I work for Action Mental Health and I am a hypnotherapist. I went through a point of thinking, what am I going to do with my life? Like, what's the point of it? Because this is that is very much like, about procreation and the family, the 2.4 kids and all these things like, oh, you'll never know love until you're a mother. Well, that's like, surely I do know
4: love. My name is Amanda Tobin. I um, I live in West Cork. I am 51. I work as a consultant in the pharmaceutical industry, now I'm self-employed and working from home. So many tiny, tiny things that you will never have, like um, school plays or um, sticky hugs, or, uh, you know, grown-up kids coming home from university with girlfriends and all the continuity in life that that gives you. You're losing all of that. Now, there's no guarantee when you have kids, you get any of this, right? But you, the problem is you're aware you're losing it. It's not like it mightn't happen. It's not going to happen.
1: My name's Jodie Day. I'm 57 and I'm living in Clonakilty, in West Cork. I've been here sort of on and off for five years now. Moved here for love. I was a Londoner uh, my whole adult life. I saw shamans who broke eggs into glasses of water and hovered them over me. I sought out spiritual healers, acupuncturists, reflexologists, nutritionists. Really, I could have just walked around London stuffing pound notes through people's door who said they could help me get pregnant. But I didn't get pregnant.
5: My name is Roisin Flanagan, and I live in Belfast. I'm in my 40s, and I work in reproductive health. I grew up in a massive big family, you know, both my parents come from big families. My mum came from a family of ten, my dad came from a family of seven and I grew up in a family of nine. So I just presumed I would have two or three children.
0: My name is Mary Graham and I'm in my fifties. I'm an art curator specialising in healthcare and I'm also a novelist. I live with my husband in Waterford. The reason I don't have children is because of timing. There needs to be a few ducks in the row at the same time.
6: My name is Ingrid. I live in Dublin and I'm an actor. I'm in my 60s now. I don't regret that I don't have children. No. I think regret is a kind of pointless emotion like guilt. I don't feel hard done by. I don't feel superior. I don't feel inferior. I don't feel undermined or concerned if I'm with people who have children. I love children, but I do get bored if people talk about their children all the time, because I think there are lots of other things to talk about.
2: Ingrid's right, and in fact that's how I got the idea for this documentary. My name is Hilary Fennell, and I was sitting around the dinner table at the Tyrone Guthrie Centre, an artist's retreat, with five women I'd just met, when the conversation suddenly veered from current affairs, art and politics, to children and grandchildren. Three of us went silent, and it became clear that we didn't have children. But that didn't stop the mothers from continuing to talk about theirs. When they began sharing the inevitable photos, we began sharing the hidden sadness around being childless. It was the first time any of us had spoken about it, as writer Mary Graham remembers. Maybe
0: because it was a 50-50 split, those of us who didn't have children spoke up. And we said, well, actually, we haven't had children and that's not our experience. And straight away, those women who included writers, writers are people who explore every facet of human experience and are curious about, about that. But straight away, those women who did have children said, oh, we never thought about that. We never thought about that. We started sharing the experience of what it was like being in society as a woman who didn't have children and who might have wanted to have children. It was a really defining moment and it kind of opened up something. It opened up a new conversation that I hadn't had before. After that dinner, I searched for hope in
2: cyberspace. I was recently divorced struggling to write a novel, and heartbroken at the prospect of not having a child. I googled childless women, life without children, happiness without babies, then how to live happily without a child. The main takeaway was a startling statistic. On average in the developed world, 20% of women over 45 are childless. Hang on, that's one in five. One in five? And of that 20%, less than 10% are childless by choice. This documentary is about the vast majority of childless women in that one in five statistic, those who wanted to have children. If there are so many of us, why does it seem we are not heard? One of the reasons could be because we don't get a very good press. Crazy cat lady, spinster, bunny boiler, hag, witch, evil stepmother. Charming, eh? All these are labels used for childless women. Historical and cultural attitudes also play their part in keeping us silent. The assumptions that were career-focused, somewhat selfish and cold, or to be pitied for not snaring a man in time. They're all pejorative stereotypes that pair no relation to the women I'm talking to, like
4: Amanda Tobin. There is such kind of stigma and shame and sense of failure about it that people are, you know, the people who are experiencing it aren't very vocal about it. And I think to break down that stigma um, and shame, people need to start, you know, expressing what they're going through. Um, Because other people, if you don't express it, just make a lot of assumptions. I'd probably internalise some of those myself. Those assumptions are never explicitly, they come out in between
0: the cracks of conversations. Those little comments that my mother would make about, she might refer to a couple and say, they never had children. I would say nothing after that, but it was a loaded statement in itself I and mean, it was filled with sadness or regret or, or that there was something not quite right about that situation. All those assumptions and coded messages help keep us silent. The
2: fact that it was so difficult to find people willing to take part in this programme is further proof, if proof be needed, that involuntary childlessness is still very much taboo. Childless campaigner and psychotherapist Jodie Day explains why.
1: I think it has deep evolutionary roots. I, I think when we were a tribal species, we survived by growing the tribe. If a woman wasn't having children, you know, that was a problem and it threatened the future of the tribe. This is part of the shame. So we have this glorification of the role of mother and this demonization of the role of childless women. The way that a taboo works is through shame. Shame is the most powerful tool of social control. If you're childless and you feel ashamed and you try to talk about it and people shame you, you stop talking about it. One of the hardest things was that I tried to talk to people about how bad I was feeling and nobody would let me talk about it. They didn't understand that it was grief. They thought it was a problem to be solved. They came up with solutions or what we call bingos in the childless community, you know, why don't you just adopt? Have you thought of having one on your own? Um, Oh gosh, you're so lucky you don't have children. Oh, you get to sleep in and travel. Oh, children are all they're cracked up to be. Here, have one of mine. Those expressions, they immediately shut down the conversation because what we're looking for is empathy.
5: I think one of the most hurtful ones would have been if you really wanted a baby, you would have tried harder or it's not God's will. That automatically pushed empathy out of the conversation. If I start talking about childlessness in any sort of way, the conversation doesn't tend to stick with the childlessness. It tends to go off into other things, and very often it tends to go off into solutions. Why don't you foster? Why don't you adopt? If I said to somebody, um, you know, my marriage has broke down, I, I got empathy and I got sympathy and I got people being supportive. If somebody came at me, if a marriage broke down and said, well, why don't you just go and get another husband? You would think there's something wrong with him. That's the experience that I have had as a childless person. I have had this, well, just go sorted. It. And it can't be sorted. I have to live with this for my dying days. And that's where the pain is.
2: In case you're doing your own private bingoing out there, wondering, well, why didn't they just adopt? It's not that straightforward. The hoops you have to jump through to qualify are extensive and invasive. You'd better have a rock-solid partnership, a supportive extended family, excellent health and very strong finances to be even in with a chance of being chosen. A combination of factors have led to the rise in childlessness, such as the availability of contraception, a more educated workforce often spending much of their fertile years establishing careers leaving very little time on the fertility clock not meeting the right partner in time relationships breaking down at a crucial age or simply putting too much faith in fertility treatments each of us has our own story for me and mary graham it was mainly a
0: matter of bad timing i didn't think i was going to have children young but I thought I was going to have children. When I was in school it was get your points, get into college, get your good degree, do it now and I was focused, hard-working, you know strategic in my chosen profession. I wanted to work in the arts and I wasn't in terms of having children. You know it was much more laissez-faire. The big variable in having a child is that it takes two to tango. I would never consider myself that kind of woman who would trample over the wishes of someone else in my determination to have a child. Neither I know was I prepared to go it alone. I wasn't in a relationship with a man with whom, for one reason or another, I was going to have a child during my fertile years. When you come out the other end and you realise those years are limited and they go by very quickly. In Ireland in the 80s, the message was pretty
2: much whatever you do, don't get pregnant. As Amanda Tobin recalls, when I meet her at her home in West Cork.
4: Good job, In your your 20s, it was about kind of building a career, uh, maybe getting your own home, travelling. They were the messages, that's what I was told success looked like in your 20s. You know, if you were going to make anything of your life, you certainly weren't kind of probably into having babies in your 20s. And I kind of bought this, hook, line and sinker. At 23, I moved to Belgium where I lived for the next 24 years. And at 30, a pretty important relationship, we were actually going to get married, ended. I think I rushed into a relationship very quickly with the wrong person that I stayed in for the next 13 years. And I did become pregnant at 39. And unfortunately, at 21 weeks, the um, genetic Tests showed that the baby had major problems and, um, you know, would have had a very, very difficult life. So we decided to terminate it. I was just numb, really. I had to actually give birth and, you know, I sat staring into space and I also, in that time, I knew my relationship was over. The kind of voice of authenticity inside me. It was screaming too loud for me to continue with this relationship and try to get a baby out of it. So I ended the relationship. Suddenly I found myself in a a world I never expected to be in. I'm single, and I've never been single. I've been in a relationship my whole life.
6: Hello, nice to hear you. Yes, no, I did get that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ingrid Craigie grew
2: up in an age of choice. She appreciated all the opportunities that came her way and was determined to forge a career in the world of acting.
6: As a young feminist in the 70s, I really wanted to make my way and be independent to fulfil the things that my education would give me. I was absorbed in, in my career, in the work that I do, and when you do something that you love, it fulfils you emotionally and creatively. I was in a very long-term relationship, but neither of us were committed or said we wanted to have children. And I certainly knew that I did not want to have a child unless the person I was with was going to be willing and able to be 50% involved in that. So in some ways, the choice just kind of disappeared.
2: Hi, Hi, how are you? I'm great. Where shall we go? Oh, where shall we do it? Oh, that looks nice. Carpets are always good for recording. Let's do it in here then. Like me, Jodie grew up in the 70s and 80s when the advantages of second wave feminism were really starting to show up in women's lives, as she tells me when we meet at her new
1: Clonacilty home. I grew up with this message that having children ruined your life. Pregnancy was kind of demonised. I then met the man who later became my husband. So I said to him when we were starting to get quite serious that I didn't think I wanted to have children. And he was like, okay. And later we got married when I was 26. After we'd been together a few years and we'd been married a few years, I said, I think I do want to have children. We tried for a few years. I was completely confident it would work. And after a few years, we went for investigations, found absolutely nothing wrong. No reason whatsoever why I couldn't get pregnant. In fact, the consultant after the operation said, first-class uterus, finest property I've seen this week. You lovely young people just go off and have lots more sex that, you know, I was 33 at the time, I wasn't told anything about, you know, the declining quality of my eggs, that we might want to consider moving on to IVF, so I went back to trying the natural way. I became obsessed with getting pregnant, baby mania set in, I went to see every alternative practitioner, uh, tried every special diet, took every special vitamin, force-fed my husband vitamins. Got him to stop using various toxic paints that he was using as part of his work. Uh, Changed my job because it was next to a road that was very heavily polluted. Stood on my head after sex. You name it, we tried it. Including one month actually where we had sex every single day because we were determined that it must be, you know, we must be missing it somehow. I peed on every colour of stick. You know, I did everything you could to try and get pregnant naturally and um, it didn't work. It lasted until my marriage broke down.
2: Gemma White knows all about the pressure baby mania can put on even the most stable relationship. At 30, she married a work colleague, James, and tried to start a family.
3: I was always like, well, if it's meant to be and if it's not meant to be, we'll not get tested, you know, we'll not go down IVF, never do IVF. It seems so invasive.
2: A couple of years into the marriage, with no sign of a baby, James convinced Gemma to change her mind.
3: We went to the consultant and he kind of went, so um, we're basically saying you should go for IVF. We show you the statistics and you're like, oh, there's a 30% chance. And they make it sound like this is so good. That means there's a 70% chance you're not going to have a baby. Like, that's not a good, that's not a good chance. But yet at the time, you're only focused on the positive. It's nearly like that We part of your mind has started down that rabbit hole of wanting a baby, and especially when you can't have something, it makes it worse.
2: They had enough savings to go private while waiting for their publicly funded NHS round. So it was full-on Project Baby.
3: I am quite an intense person. It's just like, I have a new goal. So I started nearly preparing. So we both stopped drinking in January. I went on like these crazy vitamins. I started acupuncture. We went into every aspect. Both of us ate better. We ate like, you know, lots of protein and lots of good fish. Tins what James wore, we were like, oh, this is better. I was put on the injections. I remember sitting, you know, the first time like James had, had inject me and I actually cried. Like, I can't believe this person who is not medically trained is going to start like stab me. Like, um... Fertility
2: treatments like IVF, where mature eggs are retrieved from ovaries and fertilised by sperm in a lab, are miraculous when they work. But partly because the media loves a happy ending, you rarely hear about those for whom there is no take-home baby.
3: They wheel you into a cubicle and they come back and explain to you how many eggs they retrieved. We retrieved 10 eggs, but they phone you the next day to tell you how many actually fertilised. This is where the, the real trouble starts, to be honest. Got the phone call, and I remember going into my hallway and sitting down, and just, the girl had said, so you had 10, 10 eggs, and out of those 10 eggs, 8 fertilized. So 8 fertilized, which is good, 8 fertilized. But out of those 8, 2 were abnormal. So now you have 6, and after 24 hours, you have 3 left. Some people don't like the roller coaster analogy, but that's what it was like to me. So then what they do is they phone you every two days to tell you the progress. So I got a call and they said, right, well, your eggs didn't make it. So that's the end of that. It failed. On that cycle, we spent about 10,000 euros. And I think regardless even of the financial cost, the emotional cost, the emotional cost of doing a cycle is so draining. I had that um, when I was 34 and I didn't have my IVF with NHS until I was 37. So that was three years waiting.
2: The IVF failed again. Despite the emotional, physical and financial cost, Gemma would have tried again and again. But the results were so poor there was no point.
3: The consultant, he was a very nice consultant, but he was trying to explain to me and he said, it's, it's like, you know, your body's a bit like a one litre car and it doesn't matter how much super turbo engine fuel you put in, it's not going to do anything. We said to ourselves, you know, okay, it hasn't worked and we are not going to do any more. It was devastating. But my dad, um he took his own life, was that about 10 years ago now? And that was horrendous. That's the only thing it's come close to. It is the... The death of hope, and the hope of a dream. Ellarine, would you like a cup of tea? I'd love one, oh,
5: thank you. And what way do you take your tea? I just like it really strong.
2: I'll put in milk. OK, thanks. Okay. <laughs> At her home in Belfast, Roisin shares her experience of growing up in a
5: big Irish family. My journey with wanting to become a mother, I suppose, goes back to my 20s um, when I didn't want to be a mummy. I grew up in a family home where my mother was overworked and stressed and she had a big family to raise. Everything changed for me in my late 20s, early 30s when I started seeing the people around me having children. I, I started then to have this real craving that I wanted to be a mother. But at that stage, my marriage was breaking down. And um, so my marriage was broke down by the time I was 32. Following the breakdown of her
2: next relationship, with still no longed for pregnancy, Roisin felt sure there was something wrong with her fertility. After a series of intensive medical tests and procedures, she was eventually diagnosed with an autoimmune condition, which has links to infertility.
5: I would love to see a world where fertility screening could happen a lot earlier in your 20s, because by the time I found out there was a health issue... I was almost 40 years of age. Single, still
2: reeling from a relationship breakup, and with her newly diagnosed compromised fertility, Roisin found herself in the minefield that is being a single woman, over 40, trying to find a partner to have a baby with before it's too late.
5: I thought it was going to be reasonably easy to meet somebody again and and settle down and have children. I went on to uh, a couple of dating sites I put up, don't email um, unless you want to have children. And I did get three responses and I got three fellas who emailed me, all lovely, but all of them equally as honest as I was and just didn't want to have children. My experience has taught me most fellas at that time, they've already had their children. So the last thing they wanted was to get into a serious relationship with a woman who was desperate to have a baby. So Roisin tried to go it alone. I had one doctor who was very upfront with me around that IVF isn't always successful. She was concerned that I was going to put myself through another intensive medical process that mentally would have been challenging because my mental health was starting to be affected by it all. In my desperation of trying to get pregnant, I was still getting up every morning and going and working in my job, which was all to do with sex education, how to get pregnant. It's only now that I can kind of look back and see the irony of it. Roshan explains how managing
2: the loss of a life you wanted, but will never experience, can really take its toll.
5: I wasn't functioning very well. I was living with panic attacks um, huge social isolation. I felt for myself there was a real physical need. You know, it wasn't just an emotional need. There was a real physical need for me to be a mother. There's resentment there, anger. I I was furious. I wanted I wanted somebody to blame on a spiritual level. Why hasn't this happened for me? And also there would have been an awful lot of self anger. Why did I not get pregnant in my twenties? I spent way too many weekends literally not getting out of my pajamas. Um, I found comfort in food and sitting watching rubbish TV. Would have come home from work on a Friday night and not talked to another human being until Monday morning. And that went on for a couple of years. If I'd be honest, I would have picked up the phone to the Smartins on a regular basis. I was in just in so much grief. It's very isolating, the grief of childlessness. Very, very isolating. Secret and... Um, Horrendous. That's the only way I can describe challenges.
4: I know how devastating that grief can be. You know, there were times when I found work unbearable. You know, the time I was working in an office kind of setting and a lot of people were having kids and so it was a lot of from scan pictures to baby visits to family days at work. It's an absolute expectation that these things are going to happen for you. And it is really a tailspin. You realise that it's just not going to happen for you. And you think, what the hell do I do now?
3: I really had a massive identity crisis. Like, I was just going to be seen as an old hag for not having kids. I was just, you know, I got this vision of like, just a dark sea. And it, I just like jumped in and went down, 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 down the dark sea. And I remember one other time saying it was like, I had, felt like an old tree, like an old tree that was hollow and empty. And just rubbish. I did um, some fertility counseling with the Fertility NI. And it was amazing. It was one of the turning points for me. I had to let go of the, oh, it might happen. Because hope is very, very painful and very difficult for someone who, you know, it clearly is not really happening. And I had to kind of extinguish that and move on. Or else I was going to go insane. Kind of very much like, how do you move forward? And my counselor was very much, no, we need to kind of like stay in the moment and, and you know, go over this wave and even when, when we, James and I, had those wee sales for a week, like, like to me, I kind of envisioned them as, like, humans, you know, and made it, and to the point where, like, I named them, and which, which I know is so bizarre, and I remember having a conversation with my counsellor and saying this, and she said, oh, what was her names? And, and she wrote them down, and I said, oh, actually, that's spelt wrong, and she corrected it. And for me, that was the most loveliest moment that she would actually kind of validate my craziness and just make it like it's so normal. Like I left every session having cried for an hour. It was so cathartic.
2: When a post-divorce relationship ended, Jodie knew it was too late to find a new partner and create her much-desired family. Overwhelmed by the emotional strain of it all, age 44, she fell apart.
1: I felt worthless as a woman and as a human being. I had very, very dark thoughts. I struggled to get out of bed. I struggled to do anything that had formerly brought me joy. One day when I was so demoralised and so full of anxiety and fear and darkness, I was lying on the floor of my grotty bedsit and I'm looking out at the window and the raindrops are just sort of making tracks down through the soot. And I thought, I'm going to stay here until I can think of a compelling reason to stand up. And I spent most of the day lying on the floor looking at this crack in the skirting board. I didn't actually want to end my life, but I didn't know how I would find the strength to keep going with it being this hard. The future felt like a dark lake stretching between me and death, and that I would have to scratch one day at a time off on the wall like a prison. And people would say to me, oh, but you're so lucky you don't have children. And I thought, if this is luck, you should try it for a day, because it doesn't feel like that to me. Besides the grief,
2: there are many hidden impacts from being childless in a child-centred society.
4: Suddenly you don't know, know who who you are or where you fit. And you know, usually through life, we are going along with our peers and we're you know, going to university at the same time or getting a job at the same time, whatever. And you kind of expect that with having children. And you suddenly are just not going to the promised land they're going to.
3: In my friendship group and everybody I know, I'm like one of the only people who don't have children. I am the odd one out and every time somebody else got pregnant, it's like shining a massive light on your pain and what you cannot do. You know when you brace yourself for a punch to hear this wonderful news and then you go home and cry in the bath for four hours? Like, it upset me that they were having kids and I wasn't, but I didn't kind of, like, wish they didn't have kids. I was just really angry that we couldn't. I kind of was angry with myself.
2: Alongside the anger and the disappointment, there can be a sense of failure at your inability to do something that everyone else seems to be doing so easily. Whenever anyone is asked about their greatest achievement, the answer always seems to be becoming a parent. So we are constantly
1: being told that we're missing the most meaningful experience you can ever have. I had a period of intense loneliness. I was in my mid 40s. I was single, childless, social plankton, really. I also lost my currency within my friendship group.
0: Friends disappear off the planet for you. We can live our lives with very little to no exposure to children, our young people. I have to say I really admire my friends who proactively encourage their children to engage with me as an adult. Many parents seem to assume that you would have nothing to say to their children and Um, they would have nothing to say to you. The children run through the kitchen when you visit on the way up to their bedroom.
2: Family occasions can become unbearable, a double whammy if you're
0: involuntarily childless and involuntarily single. For many years, I was single and my three siblings were married and they all had children. I still are married and still have children. It comes up at Christmas, you know, because you can't have Christmas on your own. Often I, you know, went to my sister, for example, and, and, and it was great and we had a lot of fun. But if I felt that I was stepping into the shoes of my spinster Aunt Liz, I thought, oh, am I now the spinster that sits on the corner and sips sherry? <laughs> That was my own narrative. No one was doing that to me.
2: Childlessness is a loss that doesn't go away. Most other major losses, like the death of a loved one or the end of a marriage, have a ritual to help us get over the grief and give us closure. But childlessness doesn't. So the grief can seem never-ending. Jodie tried to get over hers by expressing it in
1: words, in a blog. Because I wasn't ashamed, I used my real name, I used my real photograph. That was groundbreaking, and the replies started flooding in from all over the world, saying things like, how can you know the exact words that are in my head? I thought I was the only person having this experience. That blog has flourished
2: into the online community Gateway Women. The support of other childless women in that community helped Jodie to grieve. But she didn't start to heal until she retrained as a psychotherapist and learned that what she was experiencing is called disenfranchised
1: grief. Disenfranchised means it's not allowed. It's not socially accepted. You're not allowed to experience it. You're not allowed to talk about it. There are other forms of disenfranchised grief as well. But the disenfranchised grief of childlessness, when there are so many of us, is vast. And it also comes with a heaping of shame. So you have these two very heavy emotions Because there's this idea that somehow we've brought it upon ourselves. And that idea is reinforced by society and by the people we try to talk to. I've certainly met and worked with many women who feel guilty about how much they are struggling with their childlessness. And that perhaps they ought to be over it. That maybe they're malingering. All kinds of really, really unhelpful uh, ways of looking at our own pain. Because what we are doing then is we are actually disenfranchising our own grief Jodie transformed her
2: life. A former interior designer, she is now one of the world's leading authorities on childlessness. She's given TEDx talks, written the go-to book on the subject, and Gateway Women has become a global network, helping women
4: like Amanda. I would say until about 47, I was still bargaining with the, having a baby on my own, egg donation, meeting a man in time, you know, this trying desperately to create a family. Amanda's turning
2: point came by attending a Gateway Women event in London.
4: It was the biggest relief of all. It was like finding um, a sisterhood, a, a community of people who simply got it. They had been feeling just as isolated and suddenly you weren't alone anymore. It seems a lot of women still feel reluctant to talk
2: about this. I've made plenty of documentaries about some very tricky subjects, but this was one of the most challenging for which to find contributors. The main reason given was that people didn't want pity. And I understand that because I too was reluctant to out myself and
1: be seen with the losers. That's shame again. Shame prevents connection, keeps childless women alone in their their thoughts, but also stops them meeting other childless women, stops them identifying with other childless women so they can continue with this belief that the other childless women are losers. That's why community is so healing. It's not until we meet other women like us and we go, actually, she, she's quite cool, or she's really interesting, or, I really like her. Or, and then you're like, oh, this!" everyone here is childless, and they're really nice. And you start to realise, how have I been carrying this idea of myself?
4: Is it like Colin Kilty that's supposed to have rain, or just... Yeah, yeah, he's been looking at that, you know, that weather where you can actually
1: yeah. see the... See
2: the moving. Amanda and Jodie are now friends and neighbours because Jodie moved to Clonakilty to be with her new fiancé who just happens to live around the corner from Amanda. At Jodie's, I helped them prepare for a picnic they hosted to mark world childless week. The irony of the packed playground in front of Jodie's townhouse wasn't lost on us. The mood was upbeat and fun, but none of the childless women at the picnic wanted to be interviewed. As soon as you realise you're not going to have children, the next fear that slaps you in the face is who's going to be there for me when I'm
5: old, as Roisin, who cared for both her parents, knows. I can't help but think about that. What's my life going to look like when I'm 70 and 80, you know? Some of my um, siblings have kids and have grandchildren now and um, I'm already kind of a bit resentful. <laughs> you know, I hate to say it, I'm already resentful because I just know, well that's you looked after now in your older years and I know that's, that's a selfish and a horrible thing to say and I also know it's not the truth. I've already kind of worked it out in my head that I'm going to be in a nursing home somewhere and that is a foreign language. To the nature of my family and that's that's a frightening thing my husband
0: and i are building a house in the countryside that's where we plan to be for the next uh, few years and in the back of my mind is is a concern in the future will we be able to drive and so on
3: i don't have a lot of family and it, it is a worry the thing that i worry about most is like what happens if james dies and then i'm totally alone
2: just because you have children doesn't guarantee that they look after you in your dotage. Although research shows that only 6% of adult children don't get involved in their parents' old age, the difference is we know they won't. So we have to actively plan for our later years, as Ingrid, who is now in her
6: 60s, accepts. I I know I don't have anybody who will look after me, but I have tried to make plans to know where I will go if I'm not able to look after myself. I have made choices and kind of decisions, yeah. I also have very good friends, some are younger, you know, I have people who are going to have power of attorney, who are going to be look out, you know, who are going to do all those things.
1: As you age, those younger friends are crucial. People without children are 25% more likely to go into a long-term care facility at a younger age and with less dependency needs, precisely because they don't have advocates in the younger generation. We often think
2: that care means intimate care, like feeding and bathing, but that's actually not the care that most people need as they age. They're more likely to need help finding a reliable plumber or keeping up with developments in online banking. Help with the practical tasks of modern living so they can remain independent. As the number of people over 65 increases globally, so too does the number over 65 without children. In the UK, it's set to rise from over 1.2 million to a whopping two million by 2030. And the numbers globally are staggering. Jody was one of the original founders of Ageing Well Without Children, a UK organisation raising awareness
1: on this issue. Because it's very hard to talk about this subject, we don't realise there are amazing initiatives out there already we could be getting involved in. We could be moving into a co-housing community. We could be starting a co-housing community. We could start an AWOC group. Ageing Without Children group in our local community.
2: Ageing Without Children is just one of many serious policy issues that need to be addressed as the number of childless women and men increases.
1: Quite frankly, the political party that wakes up to how many childless people there are in society will get a big win. Pronatalism is a word you will hear from me and others in in the childless community. and At its core, what it is, is pro-for-natal birth. It means an ideology that is pro-birth. It's only bad when it's used in, a, in its shadow sense to make out that parents are more important as human beings because they are parents. It creates an inequality between those who do and don't have children, which feeds into the way that we value or or don't value childless people and their contribution to society. It shows up in families where the childless sibling might not be consulted about really important things to do with you know, family decisions and wills and bequests, because they are seen as being less important than the siblings in the family that do have children. It shows up in the workplace when, when, you know, when people without children in the workplace are expected to keep shouldering the burden that, that is placed upon them by people in the workplace who do have children. That's pronatalism. Pronatalism also shows up at policy level,
2: for example, during the COVID pandemic, when those without children can feel forgotten in the hugging grandparents discourse and the relentless schools issue, with no recognition that over 20% of the aging population doesn't have children, let alone grandchildren. Policy change could begin with workplace equality, which was key for our
1: LGBTQ brothers and sisters. If there were a recognition of the status of non-parents in the workplace, it would lead to more understanding that, for example, female-friendly policies do not equal family-friendly policies. There would be a recognition that benefits that go to people with children also need to be matched by benefits that go to people without children. There would need to be a recognition that everyone has a life outside the workplace, not just parents.
2: We also need better fertility education and to encourage the working mothers and families of the future by introducing initiatives like free childcare. While we're waiting for that utopia, I think that what involuntarily childless people are looking for is the same as any minority, acknowledgement. Acknowledgement that not having a child when you want one can really hurt. That and a bit of empathy. And if you're screaming, what about the childless men and the childless in the LGBTQ community? I know, I know, there's a whole series in this, but I had to start somewhere. The feeling that you have to do something extraordinary to compensate for not having children is
1: known as the Mother Teresa complex. I had this idea that I was going to, I was going to give away or sell all my possessions. I was going to move to Laos and I was going to dedicate my life in this orphanage. And then one day I thought this is actually an incredibly narcissistic fantasy because also I wasn't thinking about the children. I wanted this very public way for people to see how much my childlessness meant As Amanda found out, true change actually begins
2: on the inside.
4: As a childless woman, you don't need a big external life, but you need a big internal one. And I just knew instinctively that was true, that the work was going to be within me. And a lot of that was on on picking some of the the biases and the stories we'd been told, right, that kind of only mothers have have value, you know, that uh, women without children don't. Ultimately, I think there was a point came where I felt I had two choices, really two choices in my hand. I could be miserable about this for the rest of my life and feel like a victim of it um, and think that everybody else has it better. Um, Or I could just decide I have one life and, you know, I was going to live it, that I just wasn't going to have a B-rated life.
2: So Amanda moved home from Belgium and bought a gorgeous old house in Conakilty from where she now works, on her own terms. Mary has also made big changes. She recently got married, and she now works part-time
0: as an art curator, so that she can spend more time on her writing. I think it's no accident that I started writing in earnest at the age of 41. I don't think you have to be a, a psychotherapist to work out that that first novel really was my baby.
3: OK, so when you're ready, I'd like you to close your eyes and take a lovely... Gemma
2: too has made radical changes. Looking for more fulfilment, she left her well-paid but stressful job as a trading analyst for an energy company, did a master's in counselling and now works for a charity for people with learning disabilities, as well as running her own hypnotherapy business and keeping extremely fit. What is
3: this? So this is a pool for polar size... I can get upside down and stuff, but I don't need to do that for <laughs> sure. For me, it's been about focusing on the positives while coming to terms with the negatives. So I want people to know that it's not that you're always just going to spend your whole life in grief. I have a very busy life along with my job and my practice. I've done like aerial yoga and hot yoga, polar size for the last year. I'm on visit 40 countries by the time I'm 40. But COVID has put a stop to that. So I'm on number 30 and I'm surrounded by animals. Oh, my animals! I love them so much. We have two cats um, and a little dog, Olive. She's not a replacement child, but she's very much my baby.
2: I find it comforting to know it is possible to craft a new, unimagined, happy identity
1: without a child. If someone were to offer me a baby today, I, I, would, I would definitely give it back. Um, I no longer grieve not having a baby.
4: I think there's a time in life for that and it's not now, not for me. And I would certainly say today I'm in a place of acceptance and joy really.
3: Of
2: course, some continue to hope.
3: Even though yes, it's physically possible, I think it would be a miracle at this stage. If you said to me right now, right, you're going to be able to get pregnant tomorrow, would you accept it? I would probably still say yes.
5: I think if somebody told me that I was pregnant today I'd be absolutely delighted. That's the truth. I have visions of being 65 and probably still feeling exactly the same. (laughs) So that's my truth, yeah. If I've learned
2: anything from making this, I've learned that I'm not alone. And also that being childless
1: might even have a hidden gift. The process of not becoming a mother when you have spent maybe all your life preparing emotionally and many years of trying is just as transformative as becoming one.
2: Not having children means we're forced to ask ourselves really deep and existential questions about what our purpose is and what our legacy will be in a way that I don't think most parents do until their children leave home. But we have no choice. We're forced to dig down deep into ourselves. We have to learn how to find completeness in our own lives. We have to find ways to offer our gifts back to the world and to society other than as mothers we have to discover that meaning comes in many, many different forms. Now, that's pretty cool.
3: Childless
0: was produced by Hilary Fennell, with music by Dara Dukes, and was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.